Welcome to episode 31 of the 3AM Fear podcast. In the last episode, I narrated the story of a young couple who purchased a property called Fox Hollow Farm to start a new life. But what happened next was terrifying as hell. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, please do because this is going to be a continuation of that story. Or rather I would say in this episode I'm going to take you back to the story of Herb Bormeister, the original owner of Fox Hollow Farm, the one who started a chain of events that finally led to the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. In the fall of 1994, Julie, Herb Bormeister's wife, was shaken when her 13-year-old son, Eric, brought home a human skull that he had found in the woods in their estate, Fox Hollow Farm. Her anxiety only grew when Eric led them to the spot where he had discovered this gruesome artifact. And at that spot, she saw a cluster of bones scattered amongst the fallen leaves. Herb attempted to calm her down that night by telling her that those bones belonged to a medical school skeleton that once belonged to his late father, an anesthesiologist. However, Julie couldn't shake the feeling that something was off and she couldn't understand why that skeleton would be in their backyard. She had no idea what horrors were about to be uncovered. Hello and welcome to the 3AM Fear podcast. I'm Nikita Ferrao, mystery and thriller author. On this podcast, I talk about real crimes and real people. Due to the graphic nature of some of this content, listener discretion is advised. You can find the episode show notes on my website 3amfear.com. Let's get started. Herbert Baumeister, also known as Herb, was the oldest of four children born to Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister in Indianapolis, Indiana. His childhood was normal, but as he entered adolescence, he began exhibiting antisocial behavior. Now, according to the book, Herb's family was well liked in the community, but Herb was a little weird. He had once placed a dead crow on his teacher's desk in order to get a response from her. He had even posed the question to other classmates about what it would be like to drink one's own urine. Although he was diagnosed with schizophrenia during his teenage years, he did not receive any further psychiatric treatment. Baumeister attended Indiana University in 1965. but dropped out after a semester he returned to the university in 1967 before attending butler university for a semester in 1972 throughout his adult life baumeister held a series of jobs and was well known for his strong work ethic however his behavior became increasingly bizarre as time went on herb married juliana known as Julie in November of 1971 
and together they had three beautiful children. But Julie later revealed that they had only been sexually intimate six times over the course of their 25-year marriage. After marriage, Julie left her job as a high school journalism instructor in the late 1970s. She now wanted to focus on starting a family. Herb was earning decent wages at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, BMV. They welcomed their first child, Murray, in 1979, followed by Eric in 1981 and Emily three years later. When Herb was asked to leave the BMV, Julie returned to her teaching job, although their income was very less at this point. Eventually, Herb found work at a thrift store and began to realize the potential of such an outlet. He and Julie discussed the idea of opening their own thrift store based on Herb's acquired knowledge over the three years that he worked there. The couple borrowed $4,000 from Herb's now-widowed mother and in 1988 opened Save-A-Lot Thrift in conjunction with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, a charity benefiting families in the area. The shop, located on 46th Street, sold used clothing, household goods and second-hand items. The inventory belonged to the charity, which received a small percentage of the proceeds. Shoppers found Save-A-Lot tidy and offering only quality merchandise, and it quickly became popular. So popular that this was just the beginning for the Baumeisters. Julia and Herb seemed to be living the American dream. They had moved into an elegant Tudor-style home in the fashionable Westfield district, nearly 20 miles from Indianapolis, complete with four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and a riding stable. I think you know where they are right now. The property's 18 and a half acres was exactly what Julie had hoped for. She wanted to raise her kids in this very environment. But underneath the surface, there was trouble in paradise. Herb always called the shots, and Julie always went for the ride. Even though she wasn't happy in this relationship, she never said anything. She felt powerless and was not in charge of anything. Julie later revealed that she and Herb had engaged in sexual activity only six times in the 25 years that they were married. Looking back now, she realized that this was a huge red flag. She was an overly trusting wife. She always listened to her husband. She always believed every lie that he said. Despite the multiple issues in their marriage, they made sure that their children grew up in a happy home. But as time passed, dark secrets began to emerge and this beautiful life that they seemed to show everyone began to fade. In the fall of 1994, Julie was shaken when her 13-year-old son, Eric, brought home a human skull that he had found in the woods in their estate, Fox Hollow Farm. Her anxiety only grew when Eric led them to the spot where he had discovered this gruesome artifact. And at that spot, she saw a cluster of bones scattered amongst the fallen leaves. 
Herb attempted to calm her down that night by telling her that those bones belonged to a medical school skeleton that once belonged to his late father, an anesthesiologist. However, Julie couldn't shake the feeling that something was off and she couldn't understand why that skeleton would be in their backyard. Days later, Julie noticed that the bones had disappeared and she assumed that an animal had come and taken them. Virgil van der Griff had been a part of the law enforcement arena for quite some time. As a Marion County Sheriff, he had seen enough drama in his life to know what was wrong. One of his most popular cases was locating missing persons. He explained that in Indianapolis, people were not classified as missing until they had been gone for 24 hours. The case would then go to a district detective and if they did not find them in 30 days, it would travel to the missing persons bureau for them to investigate. In the early June of 1994, the mother of a 28-year-old, Alan Brossard, approached him to tell him that her son was missing. Van der Grift was not alarmed because there were many such cases and most of these cases were runaways. Even though Van der Grift had assumed that no foul play was involved, he still began to investigate this case. Alan was said to be a heavy drinker and gay, a community that pretty much shunned that lifestyle. He was last seen leaving a gay bar called Brothers. Van der Grift issued posters throughout the city and elsewhere, running Alan's photo and asking for information to anyone who might have seen him. Before the end of July, he became convinced that a serial killer was on the loose. Van de Grift was facing a peculiar situation. He learned that a police detective named Mary Wilson was working on the disappearance of other gay men throughout the area, all similar to the Broussard mystery. Even their physical appearance was similar. While scouting gay bars for information, Vandegrift came across a small article in a magazine about a man named Jeff Jones, who had disappeared earlier in mid-1993. The gay lifestyle publication reported that Jones, aged 31, had vanished from the streets of Indianapolis. Vandegrift discovered that Jones shared a background of social indifference and weird habits with others. What convinced him regarding these vanishings was that everything was almost too similar. The latest took place in July. This time, Roger Allen Goodluck left his mother's place where he lived to visit a gay bar on 16th Street. As with the other two, roughly the same age with the same casual approach to life, Roger was swallowed into oblivion. When Alan's mother came to Vandegrift, he couldn't help but think what could have happened to her son. He decided to investigate the case. But upon investigating the gay bars, Vandegrift found very less information. Many were too afraid to talk to the police. Finally, in August, just weeks after he had picked up the case, 
Vandegrift got his break. He met a guy who had known Roger from the gay bar scene. The guy had seen Vandegrift posters and believed that he had stumbled into some information, something that could help him find Roger. His story was incredible, but he swore that it was true. He had been seen with a man whom he was sure was a serial killer. And when he tried to tell the local police, the police told him that he was crazy. Phoning Roger's mother, she put him in touch with Detective Vandegrift. The informant had seen and even talked to the killer. In fact, he seemed to have miraculously escaped with his life. The situation was getting more and more complex and Vandegrift was determined to solve this case. It was a warm summer evening in August when the informant first saw the suspect. The suspect was now looking at the missing person poster of Roger that hung at the local bar. The informant couldn't shake the feeling that this man knew something about Roger's disappearance. The man introduced himself as Brian Smart and said that he was a landscape artist from Ohio currently living in an empty house that he was preparing for the new owners. Even though the informant was afraid, he decided to accompany Brian to this home and later realized that he was in the space of some very rich people. As they approached the home, the informant saw expensive new homes and horse farms. The driveway was marked by a sign, but as he got closer, he read the sign. It was too dark. All he could see was something farm. Upon entering the garage, the informant saw that it was filled with cars, beautiful cars. Brian led him through multiple rooms until they came to a staircase. They went down the staircase to the basement and entered a large recreation room at the bottom of the steps. There was a wet bar and an indoor pool. But it was what was inside the pool that scared the informant. He saw mannequins around the room, arranged in various poses. Brian seemed to notice. He claimed that he had all these mannequins because he got lonely. But the informant couldn't shake this feeling that something was off. Brian managed to convince him to go for a swim. The informant agreed. And while they were in the pool, Brian started to talk about a neat trick. He said that he had learned this trick during sex. He then picked up a hose and showed the informant how to choke someone during sex. This would give someone a great sense of rush. Brian even stripped down and asked the informant to try it on him. Although terrified, the informant did exactly as he was told because he didn't want to show Brian how scared he was. As Brian lay on a fold-out couch in the corner of a room, the informant slowly slipped the hose around his neck, feeling sickened and horrified at what he was doing. It was clear that Brian was a dangerous man, but he had no idea 
just how dangerous Brian actually was. I can't summarize the events of the night, but it would be terrifying to be in the informant's shoes. But he showed great courage because he stayed there with Brian, knowing, having this gut feeling that something was off. At some point, Brian began to feel drowsy and he slipped into a deep sleep. The informant took this opportunity to explore the house, trying to search for something that would give him an idea of who this man was. The house was poorly lit and he came across various items, including children's toys and women's clothing, which suggested that someone had been living in the house, but the items had not been completely unpacked. Brian's name did not sound genuine, so he needed to find some evidence to determine whose house this was, or what was this person's real name. Suddenly, he made a noise, causing the informant to freeze in fear. He hurried back to where Brian was just in time to convince him to leave the house and return to town. Brian agreed. While driving back, Brian made the informant promise to him to meet him the coming Wednesday. And he agreed. However, when asked to identify the house, the informant could not recall the exact location of the house. He wasn't sure where exactly the house was. And he had this memory of the signboard saying something farm. But this was not helpful because there were farmhouses all around. Despite their disappointment, the authorities hoped that Brian would keep his promise and come back for the informant. And when he would, they would catch him. Vandegrift was determined to find any leads that could help him solve the mystery of Brian's disappearance. He teamed up with Mary and the two of them started scouring the bars, hoping to find someone or something about this case. The informant still came to see Vandegrift from time to time. But despite being put under hypnosis, he just couldn't remember any useful information about Brian. So Vandegrift decided to dispatch one of his investigators, Bill, to search for clues. As Bill was driving around, he came across a long driveway in Westfield marked Fox Hollow Farm. He remembered the informant's statement saying it was something farm. So he thought he had to investigate. The estate looked a lot like how the informant had described it. It was large, run-down and morbid. Nobody seemed to be home, so Bill parked his Isuzu and peered through the several windows, hoping to catch sight of an indoor pool. If he could find the pool, then this was the house. When he couldn't find the pool, he tried to smell the sharp odor of chlorine. Meanwhile, Vandegrift ordered aerial shots of the property to get a better look. And when he showed the photos to the informant, the man just shook his head and said no. He said that this driveway was too short according to his memory. 
Despite the setback, Van de Grift and his team refused to give up. They knew that the key to solving this case was somewhere out there, and they were determined to find it, no matter how long it took. It had been almost a year since Van de Grift and Mary started looking for this man named Brian Smart. They were determined to find his real identity and uncover the mystery behind those multiple mannequins. Meanwhile, Herb, who had no idea that the police were looking for him, was experiencing a downright spiral in his personal and professional life. His marriage was falling apart, his business was suffering, shoppers were declining, and Julie was tired of the constant bickering and financial issues and by now she decided to file for divorce herb's attitude towards his employees also worsened he had now become a demanding and unjust boss he treated his employees poorly and fired anyone who refused to listen to him under herb's lack of attention the once tidy stores had now become a mess one of herb's clerks remembered that everything was dirty and there was mountains of garbage everywhere that you look on the evening of august 29th 1995 herb bormeister decided to visit the local gay bar once again the informant who had been searching for brian smart had by now given up However, the second Herb walked through that door, the informant's hope surged. He chatted with Herb, trying to get any information he could. And after the conversation, the informant made sure to note down Herb's license plate number. The next day, when the police ran the license plate number, they discovered that it was not Brian Smart, but Herb Bormeister. Further investigation revealed that Herb lived in a grand estate called Fox Hollow Farm with his wife and children. This shockingly was the exact same place where the police had been searching earlier. Mary and her boss, Lieutenant Thomas Green, were on a mission to solve this mysterious disappearance of several young men. They arrived at the Bormeister's store on Washington Street. on November 1st to get some information on these men upon arriving mary carefully observed bormeister's actions and behavior before directly confronting and asking him about these men bormeister declined mary attempted to speak with julie bormeister hoping that she could give her permission to check the property But Herb had already called Julie and told her that the detectives were falsely accusing him of theft and requested her not to allow them to search the property. Although there were problems going on in their marriage, Julie decided to trust her husband and denied permission to search the property. But when Mary explained the real reason to Julie, she was shocked. It became clear to Mary that Julie had no idea what her husband was up to. But despite this revelation, Julie still refused to grant permission to the police to search her property. But Mary didn't give up hope. She handed Julie her business card and asked her to contact her if anything ever came up. 
Despite Julie's refusal, the detectives continued the investigation. At one point, Julie even called the cops and shouted at them to leave her and her family alone. Julie believed that Mary's investigation was further destroying an already dead marriage. No matter how hard Mary tried, she just couldn't get a search warrant for the property. As a result, Mary had to wait for 6 months before she finally got something. In June of 1996, Julie Baumeister finally came to her senses. Over the past 6 months, her husband had become a paranoid wreck and the cancellation of the store's contract with their children's bureau had only added to his stress. Julie and Herb had initiated their own divorce proceedings. Suddenly, Julie realized that she had nothing to lose. She now no longer had to listen to him. So on June 23rd, she called her lawyer Bill and instructed him to get in touch with Mary. Herb was currently out of town with their son Eric visiting his mother at Lake Walsey. And Julie wanted to take this opportunity to tell Mary about the bone that she had once found in her backyard. Mary wasted no time in getting to Fox Hollow Farm the very next day. She was accompanied by two Hamilton County officials, Captain Tom Anderson and Detective Jeff Markham, both of whom were skeptical of the situation. In fact, Captain Anderson was convinced that the human remains that Mary was hoping to find would be nothing but animal bones. When they arrived, Julie met them at the front door and led them through the house to the wooden backyard. She pointed at the spot where her son had once found the skeleton 2 years earlier. She explained that she had not notified the authorities because her husband had given her a reason and now she believed that the story may have been false. Despite their skepticism, the officials began to search the area. It wasn't long before they came across something that confirmed Wilson's suspicions. Human remains. As the officials began to search the yard at Fox Hollow Farm, the scene appeared to be unremarkable. However, as they kicked through the low grass and patches of dirt, they soon discovered a charred bone about a foot long. Although they couldn't determine if this was human, the discovery was enough to scare them. As they continued to search, they soon realized that many of the pebbles and rocks were somehow together, and this flat surface did not seem flat anymore. When they closely inspected the area, they realized that what they were standing on was not pebbles or stones, they were standing on pieces of bone. Bill, who had been watching the search, looked down at his feet and was horrified to realize that he was standing on what appeared to be bone chips. He couldn't believe that he was in the same spot where the Baumeister children had once played innocent child games. He even saw what looked like human teeth lying among the scattered bones. It was now clear to Mary Why exactly Herb did not want the authorities to come and search his property? Upon closer inspection, it was confirmed that those bones belonged to humans. 
the implications were chilling it seemed that herb's home was in fact a graveyard that possibly contained the remains of many young homosexuals who had vanished over a period of time the initial search party was soon joined by other officials who arrived to conduct a thorough dig trying to figure out whom they could find as they began to excavate the yard and its surrounding areas it quickly became clear the horror that had taken place at fox hollow farm the remains of multiple victims were soon uncovered and the authorities were shocked to discover just how many lives had been lost in this area the anthropological team tasked with excavating the yard at fox hollow farm began their search by placing small orange flags on the ground wherever they could find bone fragments within just half an hour they had already dropped nearly 100 markers the scene looked like something out of a mass disaster zone as the search continued into the late hours other policemen began to explore the interior of the bomeister home they quickly found the mannequins the wet bar the pool just how the informant had described to them but as they searched further they discovered something that the informant had not seen there was a semi hidden video camera the police immediately suspected that this camera was used to record the strangulations of bombmeister's victims adding yet another layer of horror to an already nightmarish situation julie was beside herself with worry for the safety of her son eric who was now with her husband she knew that herb might be hiding something but she never suspected that her husband would be capable of such horrifying things it never occurred to her that herb was living a double life custody papers were immediately drawn up and eric was removed from his father's presence to julie's surprise herb released their son calmly without creating another issue when questioned about how she had not known about her husband's crimes julie explained that when she and her kids would go to visit herb's mother he would be left alone and it seemed like all these disappearances were happening around that same time as the investigation continued the time of death of the victims somewhat matched julie's statement the excavation continued in the backyard with dozens of volunteers sifting through the dirt for bones and other items as they dug deeper they found evidence of even more bones next door in the end they estimated that the remains belonged to a total of 11 men her bomeister realized that he was about to be caught and he decided to flee but he made a mistake he asked his brother for money and his brother called the police on the evening of july 3rd herb was found dead in binary park he had taken his own life using a 357 magnum revolver a note was found beside his body blaming his decision on his struggling business and failing marriage surprisingly there was no mention of the skeletons found in his property it appeared that herb took the secret to his grave along with the videotapes that were still missing 
Despite the lack of admission, it was evident that Herb was responsible for the deaths of at least 11 men who were found on his property. The community was left in shock and the victims' families were left to mourn their loss and seek closure. Even with his death, Herb Baumeister never gave any sense of closure to the families of his victims. There were families who wanted to know whether their family members were one of Herb Baumeister's victims. Now in order to do that, they had to do a DNA test. The police were all for it. But DNA test back then was really expensive. In 1996, it was almost $1200 per test. and this amount had to be paid by the families the families were not that rich and so they could not afford this test because of which many of her bombmeister's victims remained unidentified the anthropology team tried to bring down this cost and even managed to do it and bring it down to $650 per test that's a considerable reduction but even with this $650 was too much for many family members in total out of all the bones and debris that they could find eight individuals were identified it is believed that herb may have had anywhere between 17 to 20 victims also it is believed that many of the victims may not have been from the city itself they may have been transitioning to another city or may have just come for a small vacation that may have been the perfect reason why her bombmeister chose these people as his victims while the investigation was still going on one of the investigating officers spouses is believed to have leaked this information to the media and when this news flashed on her bombmeister saw it and realized what trouble he was on It is believed that her bombmeister's tapes could have information or even real life recording of his murders. But because Herb died without notifying what happened to those tapes, one could only wonder, did he destroy them, hide them somewhere safe? Herb took the secret to his grave. Shortly after his death, Herb's wife and children moved to another house. Fox Hollow Farm was returned to the owners those who had sold the property on contract to the Baumeisters in the first place. There are many stories about the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. Now whether that place is actually haunted or not is unknown. But the story has been drawn from a real life tragedy. The murders that took place at the property have left a lasting impact on the community and the property itself. The property is said to be haunted by the spirits of men who were killed there. Numerous paranormal investigators and ghost hunters have visited Fox Hollow Farm over the years and many have claimed to have experienced the strange phenomena while they were on the property. Some have reported hearing disembodied voices, seeing apparitions and feeling a sense of unease while on the grounds. Despite the claims of paranormal activity, many people believe that the real horror of Fox Hollow Farm are not the ghosts or the spirits, but it's the tragedy that occurred there. The murder of 11 men at the hands of her bombmeister is the true horror story. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. 
If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. It really helps me reach new listeners. If you have a true crime story or a case that you'd like me to cover on a future episode, please send in an email. I'll link it in the description. I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to subscribe to the 3AM Fear podcast so you do not miss any future episodes. You can find my YouTube and social media links in the description box so you're always updated on what I'm up. If you love thrillers, I have a free thriller ebook listed in the description. Do check it out. Until then, stay kind and stay safe out there. See you next week.